All right. Thank you. <laughs> I'm just going to say thank you all, all morning. Thank you, thank you. Okay, so um, I'm not Pastor Mark. He's not here um, right now. They're um, out of town. They're getting refreshed. Um, so I have the privilege, the honor to bring the word of God to you guys this morning. I'm really excited. Um, uh, been putting together some things. And I'm really excited because I've got graphs and I've got bullet points and things on the screen, um, which is the opposite of, like, what I liked in high school. Um, but now I, I like this kind of stuff. Um, so if you're taking notes, uh, this is a good day to take notes. I mean, it's always a good Sunday to take notes. But um, I've got some stuff that will be on the screen for you guys. And why don't we just jump right into it? I've got about 40 minutes. I'm going to try and get through all of it. Um, and you guys, I need your help. So just put a draw, put an expectation, not on me, but on the word of God, on the spirit of God, on the presence of God this morning. Because every time the word of God is opened, the ability for your life to change is present. And the Holy Spirit quickening and making the word of God alive, that's what changes the Bible. That's what changes this book from being like any other book, is when you allow the spirit of God to speak to you through it, make it come alive in your mind, in your heart, and then it comes out of your mouth, and then your life is changed. Amen? So last week we started a brand new series called God Help Me. So raise your hand if you've ever prayed that prayer before, right? Maybe you prayed it this morning as you were getting ready. Um, if you have kids, that's like a pattern. That's a staple in your house. God help me. Lord, help me. Give me some patience with my children. I love my children. Um, and help me reflect that in the way that I talk to them, right? God, help me, okay? So there's nothing wrong with acknowledging your weakness. There's nothing wrong with acknowledging your inadequacies and, and really asking God for strength. In fact, I think that's how the Christian life is meant to be lived. You know, what did the Apostle Paul say? Um, turn to 2 Corinthians 12, um, verse 9. I'm going to read it because we're running short on time. But he said this. He said unto me, my grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproach, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. For when I am weak, then you could say he is made strong, or I am made strong through him. Right? Paul was saying, listen, I can't do it on my own. I, I screw up and there's things happening to me all the time. And if I'm just trying to deal with this in my own strength, I'm going to fail every single time. So when trouble comes my way, I just laugh about it. Because that's an opportunity for God to show himself strong to me and through me. Amen? So if you've got some weaknesses, that's okay. What we do with them is the real question. Do we put that back at the feet of Jesus and allow his grace and strength to come? Or do we just say, mm, I can't do it. Right? Listen to it in the Amplified Translation. He says this, my grace is sufficient for you. My, love and kind, my loving kindness and mercy are more than enough. Always available regardless of the situation. For my power is being perfected and is completed and shows itself most effectively in your weakness. Therefore, I will all the more gladly boast in my weakness so that the power of Christ may completely enfold me and may dwell in me. So I am well pleased with weakness, with insults, with distresses, with prosecutions, and with difficulties for the sake of Christ. For when I am weak in human strength, then I am strong, truly able to 
truly powerful, truly drawing from God's strength. Amen. The life that God has called us to live really is unattainable without him. We need to realize that. The life he's called us to live is unattainable, can't reach it in our own strength. We need him, right? We need the gift of grace, which is what? Real quick, we'll just go through it. Number one, grace, and most people know this, it's unmerited favor, okay? It's the free gift of God. We couldn't earn it, right? We cannot deserve this. Nothing that we do in our own strength, in our own ability, none of our own righteousness equates to anything in the kingdom of God. That's why his grace is a free gift. It's unmerited favor. Number two, it's a divine influence upon your heart, which has its reflection in your life. And lastly, and I think most importantly for our time spent here on this earth, number three, grace is divine empowerment. I don't have slides for these ones. I'm sorry. You're probably thinking, like, where's the slides, dude? Just wait. Just wait. It's coming. It's divine empowerment. It's God's grace. It empowers us to do what we otherwise could not do in our own strength or on our own. What God calls you to, you cannot do apart from grace. Amen? So those are the three parts of grace. Unmerited favor, the divine influence upon your heart, which has its reflection in your life, and its divine empowerment. And here's the reality. We need grace, but we also we need the gospel every single day, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And to quote a worship pastor that I admire, his name is Zach Hicks, he stated this, the gospel is just as much for Christians as it is for non-Christians. It's just as, it's, it's as much for Christians as it, is, as it is for non-Christians. So what is the gospel? Well, the gospel is the good news of Jesus Christ, that the Son of God died for our sins, right? He rose again. Um, eternally triumphant over our enemies so that there is now no condemnation for those who believe, but only everlasting joy. That's the gospel. So this isn't something that we preach once to an unbeliever. They get saved and they go on their way and they try and live a good life, right? It's kind of, sometimes we view it as like the gospel is like the pretty little message we teach to, at the beginning of someone's spiritual walk. They get saved, and then they move on from the cross, and they go on this path called what we call discipleship and growth towards God. Okay? Right? But it's, not, it's something that we need to desperately be reminded of on a daily basis. Right? That I was once far away from God, but Jesus, what did he do? He brought me near, and he took my punishment, and when he rose, I rose with him. And there was great power released on that day. Power to do what? Well, to live a life of victory over the enemy here on this earth today. Today. Amen? Today. A lot of times we have our vision set too much on eternity. I mean, that sounds like a, that, that doesn't work. We, we are supposed to have our minds set on heavenly realities, but we think like, oh, everything will be fine when I get to the other side. Well, yes, it will. Yes. But you, he purchased a life of victory for you here, now, on this earth, today. So you don't have to suffer. So we need to figure that out. Amen? So what was Paul's singular focus and aim when he was talking to the church of Corinth, when he was talking to the church of Philippi? I'm going to put it in a nutshell. He basically said this, that my goal is to know Christ and him crucified, and what else? To know the power of his resurrection. The power of his resurrection. Right? Or in other words, I want to know Jesus personally and intimately. I want to fully understand what happened on the cross, his death, his burial, his resurrection, and why it needed to happen. 
and what it means for me moving forward in this new life with him. See, the gospel isn't a one-time message, but it's something that we need to fully grasp, understand, and rely upon each day. Okay, so we often think, and here's my first slide, we often think that Christian growth looks like this. And I can't take credit uh, for this portion of the message. This was from Zach Hicks. He's a worship pastor. And um, I heard him speak on this at a conference last year, and it really changed the way I do things. Um, And I'm hoping it will do the same for you. So we look at Christian growth like this. We start with the cross. We encounter the gospel of Jesus. And then we leave the cross behind And we start on a steady upward trend, you know, up into the right. We call that growth. We call it Christian discipleship. And the end is heaven, okay? Um, But if we're being honest, it might look more something like this next slide. That seems a little bit better, right? Um, It looks like an iffy stock um, on the stock market, you know. (laughs) You don't know, when do I buy, when do I sell? I don't know. Um, (laughs) Uh, you know, we have our ups and our downs. You know, we've, we have an amazing victory just to jump off the cliff, it seems like, and hit rock bottom again. But look at the average trend here, okay? Average trend is still up and to the right. Um, it, it seems more fun, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. Um, but still, the cross is at the bottom, right? We kind of leave the cross behind. Um, even this graph, uh, more accurate and honest, it's still not what Christian growth looks like. Um, so let me propose a third model. I think it actually looks more like this, all right? We've got two arrows, two paths, um, going towards what seems like different directions, but actually they're going towards the same direction. So this is uh, what this one looks like. The lower arrow is our growth in recognizing, understanding, and experiencing the depths of our need and dependence on God, all right, recognizing our need and dependence upon him. And what marks the growth in maturing Christians is not how much we're getting better, but it's really understanding how much we need God more than we ever thought. Amen. Christian growth isn't like, man, I'm getting better, I'm sinning less. Hopefully that happens, but we like to kind of chart these things out, right? Um, and say, like, well, I'm getting better. I didn't do this. I didn't do this. I didn't do this. And it's kind of like we are growing in independence instead of dependence, right? So this is the first aspect of growth. Put up the next one. The second one is recognizing. This is the arrow that goes up. Simultaneously, the upper arrow represents our growth in recognizing, understanding, and experiencing the heights of God and his character, His holiness, his majesty, his power, his love. It's saying, God, you are far more amazing than I even realized. Right? You're far more holy than I even would think. You're far more powerful than I had ever dreamed. So it's two arrows going in the same direction but getting farther apart. You know, we need to recognize how amazing God is. It's why David wrote in Psalm 36, 5 and 6, he said, Your mercy, O Lord, is in the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the great mountains. And your judgments are a great deep. He was like being blown away. And then in Psalm 139, verse 6, his jaw is still dropping. All right, He had 103 chapters to try and figure this thing out. And he still couldn't fathom how amazing God was. 
Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. That's the equivalent of going, right? It blew his mind. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's high. I cannot attain it. So in this graph, it's God that goes up and to the right. Not that God is increasing in his attributes. You know, we sing the song, you keep on getting better. And someone was like, you know, that's not true. <laughs> like, well, thank you for that. My awareness, my revelation of who God is increases. Every single day as I spend time with him, I find out something new about him. It's the way it should be, right? So he's not increasing in his holiness, but my awareness and my recognition of him in his holiness is increasing. Amen? So Christian growth is experiencing both of these realities at once. Increasing awareness of the depths of my needs and increasing awareness of the heights of God's character, his character, his attributes, his power, his glory. But notice that this, the, the trend that this model produces, right? we got God height, God's heights right there and our needs on the bottom. As this, height, as this graph gets farther and farther apart, we're creating a, a gap here. We're creating a gap. So the question is like, okay, um, what fills the gap? Or in old models, you know, what would, uh, you know, discipleship looked a certain way in these old models, but what does discipleship really look like and growth really look like in this new model? So what do we fill the gap with? Next slide, please. What fills the gap? What does discipleship look like in a model like this? So it's one where the cross gets bigger and bigger and bigger. It's one where the gospel becomes more beautiful and more believable as we grow and mature in our faith. Amen? To grow in the Christian life is to grow in recognition, experience, and belief that Jesus really is who he said he was, right? In a sense, we need the gospel more now, no matter how old you are, how mature you are, you need him more now than you did when you first got saved. Because that's what Christian growth is really about. Understanding the more you see how amazing and holy he is, and the more you realize that you are not enough without him. And what fills that gap is the cross. It's the gospel. It's the grace of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen? Whew. The awareness of our own depravity increases, but so does our awareness of his power to save and his grace to overcome. As the gap between my depravity and God's holiness increases, the only thing that can fill it is the cross, the cross, the gospel, the grace of Jesus. So it's why the Bible is always really encouraging us to not boast in ourselves. <laughs> right? Because in our own strength, we fail every single time. Listen, God's grace will only be as amazing to you and the cross will only be as big to you as you are realistic with your own state of affairs, understanding where you actually are and that you actually need him. Come on. The, the power of the cross and the gospel and God's grace will only be as powerful and as real to you as you are realistic with your own state of affairs. What a mistake to say, man, I can, I can do this on my own. I can totally do this on my own. Pastor Mark once stated this. You should write this down. It blew me away. If you're not willing to admit that you're not good enough, you won't embrace Jesus when he says that you are. Pastor Mark said this. If you're not willing to admit that you're not good enough, you won't embrace Jesus when he says that you are. Listen, you are enough because he is enough. We sing that in Jaira. 
forever enough, right? More than enough. We are enough because he is enough, and we are now found in him. And if he's enough, by his grace, by an understanding of who he is, we can become enough. Amen? Amen. So now hear me out. Uh, hear me out. I, the goal here is really not to stay in this state of depravity. That's the third time I've said that word. I think I don't say that outside of a Sunday. And, you know, the goal is to not live in a sin consciousness. And I'm, I'm talking about being aware of your own, like, human nature and being flawed. But you don't stay in a sin consciousness. Let me just, let me just tell you that right now. It's to be aware of your need for him and to be aware of the grace that he's provided for you to fulfill and live out the life that he's called you to live. Amen? So, God help me. It's really one of the greatest and most humble prayers you can pray. God help me. As I understand how great you are and how little I am. You know, that's why the psalmist said, well, woe is me, right? There's a big gap there, but thank the Lord for the gospel. Thank you, Jesus, for your grace that fills that gap. I need you more now than I did, than I did yesterday, than I did the day before, because I'm increasing in my awareness. Amen. So the title of today's, God, uh, of today's message is, God help me be holy. All right, we're going to talk about holiness. I know love, everybody loves this, this um, subject, holiness. God help me to be holy. You know, it seems sometimes it, it, that this term makes us feel uneasy. You know, it feels kind of lofty. It feels like rules. Uh, it feels like no fun. <laughs> but in the New Testament, holiness simply means set apart. Set apart. So today I want to reverse the stereotype of holiness and show us that with God's grace, we can live set apart for him. So next slide, please. Why do we want to be holy? All right. Why, why be holy? Just There's a lot of reasons why. I'm just going to give you three. Holiness fosters intimacy with God. It fosters intimacy with God. Psalm 15, 1 through 2. Who may abide in your tabernacle? Who may dwell in your holy hill? He who walks uprightly and works righteousness and speaks the truth in his heart. That's reason number one. Holiness fosters intimacy with God. Go to point number two. Holiness makes us useful to God. It makes us useful to God. 2 Timothy 2, uh, 20 and 21. But in a great house... There are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honor and some for dishonor. 21. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from the latter, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified and what? Useful for the master, prepared for every good work. For every good work. Your holiness makes you useful to God. Now let's go to point number three. Holiness causes others to glorify God. I need to walk this way. I'm like leaving you guys in the cold over here. I'm sorry. Holiness causes others to glorify God. But now I got to read my notes. I'll come back. First <laughs> Peter 2, 9 and, uh, through 12 says, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Verse 10, who once were not a people but are now the people of God who had not obtained mercy but now have obtained mercy. Verse 11, beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, this is what we're getting to here, then when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works, which they observe, glorify God 
in the day of visitation. All right, so your holiness fosters intimacy with God. It makes you useful to God, and it causes others to glorify God. Amen. A few reasons why you should be trying to figure out how to live holy. And actually, we don't need to really figure it out. We need to pray this prayer. God, help me. And he'll show you, and he shows you through his word. And that's what we're going to do this morning. So turn over to Hebrews 12, 14. This is my foundational text for today. Hebrews 12, 14 says this. Pursue peace with all people and holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. That's a really big statement. Without holiness, nobody is seeing God. It's like, that's really harsh, mysterious writer of Hebrews. Why would you say that? <laughs> well, let's, let's um, break it down a little bit, all right? I see three ways to look at this scripture, okay? In the Aramaic, which is the language that Jesus spoke, fun fact, the verse is translated like this. Without holiness, no one will see into the Lord. No one will see into the Lord, all right? So here's point number one. Your holiness is a window for the world to see you, right? I'm making three points about how I see this verse. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Point number one here is your holiness is a window for the world to see the Lord, all right? Your holiness doesn't just affect you. It affects those around you. If you are not holy, people will not see Jesus in you. You are a temple. You literally house the spirit of God. So you're thinking like, if the Spirit of God is in you and people are supposed to see God but he's in you, there needs to be like a window there, right, so people can see into you. And another thing that Zach Hicks uh, expressed at this conference was he said there's two types of worshipers in life. And you're like, man, I don't sing. Listen, everybody's a worshiper, whether you sing or not, <laughs> right? Everybody, we're, called, we're priests, okay, that's what the priest does. He said, you are either clear glass or you're stained glass, you look at a church that has a lot of stained glass, it's beautiful. It reflects the light in cool ways. It bounces colors off the wall. And you sit there in church and you're just like, wow, whoever made this is awesome. But you can't see through stained glass. So what's our motivation? What are, why are we living this Christian life? Why are we trying to be holy? Is my motivation perceived reputation to look pretty? Say, See all these colors? All right? But if the goal is to see Jesus, stained glass is not cutting it. Your goal is to be clear glass. Amen? Clear glass. Your holiness is a window for the world to see the Lord. And again, I said holiness means set apart. So if you want people to see him in you, you need to be completely separate and totally his, which means out from the world. It's like being in the forest in an orange jump, jumpsuit, right, in an orange vest, right? People can see you. That's the way it should be so you don't get shot by another hunter. <laughs> you know, if you're blending in with the world, it's very hard for people to see you. It's like you're, you're wearing Advantage Timber, and they're like, where are you? I don't know. It, it's not a good time. Your holiness is an open window for people to see Jesus. Now let's flip it. Let's make it personal. Here's point number two. Your holiness is how the Lord sees you. And it really it determines whether he sees you or not. And I'm not, I'm not blaspheming. It's not heresy. 
Is God all-knowing? Yes. Does he know where you are? Yes. But, you know, he even asked Adam and Eve in the garden. He's like, where are you guys? He knew where they were. But um, holiness is how the Lord sees you. So let's, let's break this down just a little bit. All right, picture it this way. You know, God is sitting up in the heavens, and he's thinking, he's asking, where's my son? Where's my daughter? You know, I gave, I know that they gave their life to me 15 years ago, but I'm having trouble seeing them right now. They're blending in. I have some things I'd like to show them. I have some things I want to talk to them about. I've got the steps that I want to order for them to walk through, but I'm having a hard time seeing them right now, right? I, you know, again, what, what he said to Adam and Eve, you know, he said, where are you? I also think of the uh, prodigal son. The prodigal son, he rebelled, he went away from his father, and he lived like the world, right? He went into the world, and he blended in. The father could no longer see him. The father knew that he was in the world, but he was too far away. The father didn't see him. He didn't see him. He knew he was in the world, and he was in his own sin, but he couldn't chase him down. The son had to come back to him in order to be restored. 2 Chronicles 16, 9 says this, For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth, to show himself strong on behalf of those whose hearts are loyal to him. The picture that I get is like, like, a, like a rover on the bottom of the ocean floor that's got lamp, lamps. And it's shining and it's scouring for treasure. right? And it's skipping over some things that might be buried. right? It, it's there, but it's buried. It's looking for things that are shining and reflecting on the surface. Yeah? So God is... In a, in a sense, passing over those who are not sticking out. And he's looking for what? Hearts that are fully committed. And what he's going to do with hearts that are fully committed? He's going to strengthen those hearts. Which means he's got a reservoir of power ready and available to give to people who are fully committed, set apart, and holy for him. Amen? Loyal and committed hearts. Which brings me to my third point on this scripture, and it's the point that really is the most obvious. You yourself cannot see the Lord unless you are holy. Leviticus 11, 1 Peter, they both say the same thing. God says, be holy for I am holy. The New Living Translation says, you must be holy because I am holy. So, you know, why so much emphasis? Why must we be holy? Well, because God loves us. His deepest desire is intimacy. It's deep relationship with his children. And there's this pesky little thing that always gets in the way of relationship, and that's called sin. That's called our flesh. That's called our own desires. Listen, every choice you make in your life, literally every choice you make in some way, shape, or form, either brings you closer to God or draws you further away. So if you're wondering where God is, he's not punishing you for sinful behavior, that wrath was already appeased on the cross. But what you're doing is you're removing yourself from his presence. I'm going to, camera people, you got to work on zooming. Here we go. Now I'm coming back. You're removing yourself from his presence to where you can't see him and he can't see you. Does not sound like that's going to work for a relationship. So, you might be thinking, you know, hey, Jonathan, that's great, um, but we were made holy when we accepted Christ. Yes, you are correct. Thank you for saying that. Um, but there's two aspects of holiness I want to get into. Some more points here. Um, we've got two types of holiness or two aspects of holiness. The first being positional holiness. 
And you should listen to John Bevere teach on this. He does a really good job. Um, the first being our positional holiness. This is our change of status that took place when we received Jesus as our Lord, right? We know we were just praying earlier. We're found in him. Our identity is found in him. That's, that's actually true. We, the only way we are able to be in the presence of the Father is through the righteousness of Jesus. He was perfect. We're still not perfect, but now we're like, it's like an egg. We're found in him, and that's what gets to go into the presence, right? Positional holiness. Ephesians 1.4 states that Christ chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. That's positional holiness. So let me give you uh, an example. When I got married to my wife in uh, 2017, I became hers. I had a change of status, all right? Change of status. Um, I am no more Brittany's husband today than I was in 2017, Okay, I'm still, like, that position is still there, okay? Uh, I'm just as much her husband now. It doesn't change. That's my position. Now, let's look back at 1 Peter 1.16. He says, be holy as I am holy. And he's not talking about position. He's actually talking about behavior. So the second aspect of holiness is behavioral holiness. We've got two working together here. Positional holiness, that is set when you receive Jesus. Second is how you respond and behave according to your revelation of point number one. So after I married Brittany, there needed to be a behavioral change that would come in line with my positional change, okay? Since I'm completely and totally hers, that means I'm saying goodbye to however many billions of other women that there are on the earth, okay? Not that I know all of them. But I had to say goodbye to the things of the world and say yes to one person, one person forever. So if I was to be married to her and still be going on dates with other women and flirting with them, that would be a problem. And so we we're like, yeah, that's crazy. I'm like, you're probably making her uncomfortable now. Probably. But we don't realize that we're doing this with God. We say, God, I'm yours. Here's my life. Take it. I'm yours. Thank you for saving me. Now let me just go back to exactly what I was doing. And right, I still, like, do I turn the punch card in at the end? Like the, the ticket to ride, right? It's at the end. I just give it to you and I get to go to heaven. Ah, man, I'm not one to say anything about what's going to happen at the very end. But I can say this, that if we're that much disgusted with this natural example of a married man still flirting and hanging out with old or exes and, and, and people of the world, if we're that disgusted with a natural example, that God is perfect, he's holy, the things that are unseen made the things that are seen, he's, he's our savior, he's our creator, he desires intimacy, and we're not, uh, we're not disgusted in the same way, we need, to, we need to get a greater revelation. We need to understand this a little bit more. We can't cheat on God, but we do. I do. We're working on it. That's why we're saying, God, God, help me not cheat on you. It's the same thing with God. Our behavior should line up with our position. We have been made holy, so now we walk in holiness. We need to separate ourselves from old ways, old behaviors, and be devoted to him. All right? So salvation doesn't just end with, with being saved, uh, or, you know, praying a prayer, and that's it. It's actually the birthplace 
It's where you start, but it's not where you end. It's not the life of blessing and victory in totality. That's not like when you get saved, that's not all there is to it. There's so much more to experience. And how do you experience the more? You experience it through holiness. Through holiness. This word, like I said earlier, usually has a very negative connotation. We think of rules. We think of do's and don'ts. We think of legalism. We think of a scorecard that which, you know, by which we're judged and determined if we're good enough. But holiness is, is beautiful. Holiness is the nature of Christ. It's not about rules. It's not even about perfection. It's about pursuing Jesus. And if we're going to be pursuing Jesus, we need to be pursuing his character. And he's holy. Holiness is beautiful. And a lot of this stuff, you know, it, it's even been preached in the church as this thing that's like, man, like that seems just like a bunch of rules. And sometimes the enemy can get in those things. He will use lingo that's in the church. He'll use, you know, well-meaning Christians to trip you up on this idea of holiness. And he doesn't really care what trips you up as long as it trips you up. Right? There's no rules with him. Right? He does the low blows all the time. <laughs> Right? He's flipped it into something negative that causes people to run the other way because it seems like this unbearable yoke or burden. And you think like, ugh, yuck, I have to be holy? No, you get to be holy. And God said, Jesus said, his burden is light. His yoke is easy. Or vice, was it the other way around? Yoke is easy, burden is light. I'm not sure. But you get to be holy. So we need to change our thinking. All right? We need to change our thinking. And this is the thing. It was a lot easier for me to fully devote myself to Brittany, because I knew that she was fully devoted to me. And that's why love is the greatest motivator. Because when you understand, what does the Bible say? We love him because he first loved us. And it's not just like, I'm not loving until you love. No, it really, what it means is I get a revelation of how much he loves me. That gets into my heart and begins to motivate me and inspire me to do good works, to be well-pleasing and honorable to him. We have to understand how much, just, just like it's not a chore for me, it's not like really hard for me to not cheat on my wife. It's very easy to stay devoted because I know how much she loves me. I know, I know that I know how much she loves me. So when we understand how much God loves us, it turns holiness from being a chore into being a joy and a privilege. I want to please my father because I love him and he loves me. And I'm wrapping up here. Actually, I got six more points, but I'll do it kind of fast. I'll try. <laughs> Ready, go. No, I'm just kidding. Don't put it up yet. You can, yeah. Um, so, again, talking about the father and his love for me, I'll give you an example. Um, I played baseball growing up um, in high school, and we had a non-division game against a Grand Junction team that was a 5A team. And it didn't really mean anything, but I wanted to do good in this game. And so, thank you. Makes me sound more spiritual. I love it. Um, no, actually, I really do. <laughs> um, so I was pitching in this game, and I knew my dad was going to be there, and I'm in warm-ups. And in warm-ups, it's going, like, really good. I'm making the, the glove pop. Okay. I'm hitting the corners. And then it's like you're, you're passing the eye test. Like if a scout was there, I'd just see like a scout. He'd be looking at me like, yeah, this guy's got the stuff. I probably didn't. But I was hitting the corners. And I'm hitting my spots. I'm making the glove pop. And my coach was Pastor Mark. He was my pitching coach. And I look at him, and he's like, you, you're feeling it today. I'm like, I'm feeling it today. 
and my dad's there. I get up on the mound. Again, this is the Grand Junction team. It's a 5A team. I have a nine-pitch inning, which means all strikes. They swing on every single one. I strike out all three batters. One, two, three, next batter. One, two, three, next batter. One, two, three. Set them all down, look over at my dad. I'm like, <clears throat> and I'm getting cocky. I'm getting cocky. I come out second inning, and I'm just like, oh, yeah, let's go. Like, and what happened was, I don't know if it was my own ego or they just got the scouting report on me. They figured out what was going to happen. But uh, the first batter of the second inning tees off home run. I'm not lying. <laughs> just if you were wondering <laughs> if I'm lying in church. He tees off, home run, look over at my dad. He's like, All right. second batter. It was one pitch, second batter, tees off, home run. I'm not kidding. Two home runs. I'm like starting to panic. <laughs> like, I thought I was supposed to be good. I'm like crying as I'm throwing. <laughs> Next batter gets on base. I'm like, well, that's better. Next batter brings him to third. Next batter drives him home. I'm like, I'm like falling apart at the seams. This is like a meltdown. It was literally like the, the Dr. Jekyll and Hyde of, of baseball performance. It was like one way in the first inning and totally different in the second inning. So much that I had to get pulled. And my reliever couldn't even make up the, the, the ground that we had lost. We lost the game. And I was so bummed. But I remember talking to my dad. And he was like, you know what, son? Remember how you were making the glove pop in practice? Remember how you're hitting your corners? Remember how you struck out all three batters, the, the, the top three hitters in the order, a nine-pitch inning? How often does that happen? So, yeah, you're right. So my dad wasn't focusing on my mistakes. He didn't talk about how, you know, I had two home runs or they had two home runs and all, all that kind of messed up stuff. Uh, he, he focused on my victories. Did we address the failures? Yes, we did. But his primary focus for me was his love for me. And it, and it inspired me in a way that the next time I, I, I went and I played in a game, it, it inspired me to do better. You know, there's, there's two ways that we can look at this. Um, you know, you can either look at it as like, oh, no, my dad is here. I better not screw up. Or, hey, my dad is here. I want to play good for him. And that's the difference between a love motivation and a fear motivation. If we've been serving God and saying, like, oh, God's watching, I got to be holy, I better not screw up, you have the wrong view of your father. And that might even come from natural things. You know, we always don't have the best natural example of fathers. Some people didn't have fathers at all. Some people had terrible fathers. But God is a father to the fatherless, and he's a perfect father. And when we put our trust in him, we understand that he loves us. And he's with us. And he addresses the mistakes together with us. And we move on into victory together. And so we need to have that understanding of his love. Right? The Bible says that he casts our sin as far as the east is from the west. And he remembers them no more. So a desire to be holy is really birthed out of a revelation of how much God loves you. And fear motivates people to do a lot of things. I think it's the second best motivator. But that's not how God works. That's how the devil works. God isn't going to scare you into living holy. He's, uh, we don't live holy because we're scared of the consequences of unholiness. We are holy because we love him. All right. Give me five minutes and then I'll be done. Five minutes. Okay. Go to the first point here. 
Six keys to living holy. Again, these are all found in the word. They're found in Colossians 3, uh, all, all through Colossians 3, right? So the point number one is get high. You're like, what? We are in Colorado. Just chill. Get high. Col- Colossians 3, 1 through 2. Since you've been raised to new life with Christ, set your sights on the realities of heaven where Christ sits in the place of honor and at God's right hand. Think about things of heaven, not the things of earth. Come on, stop spending time thinking on things of no value, like who you offended or who offended you, what that person said, or what movie just came out. Think on Jesus. Focus on the eternal. Think about the cross. Think about the blood of Jesus. Think about your righteousness. Think about how you're a son or a daughter. Think about the word. Think about souls coming into the kingdom. Think about love, joy, peace, kindness. Think about forgiveness. Come on. Number two, stop wearing your giveaways. That's Colossians 3. I'm going to read 5, and then I'm going to read 7, 8, and 9. It says, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Verse 7, you used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must also rid yourself of these things. Their uh, anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other since you have taken off your old self with its practices. These things are part of old nature. Those are the grave clothes. Those are the giveaways. You know, I mean, you don't want to give them to someone else, but for the sake of the term. <laughs> don't wear something that's gross and smelly and rotting that should be in the ground, right? You can say, stop wearing your giveaways or stop wearing your grave clothes. Number three, put on your fancy clothes, okay? Fancy clothes, Colossians 3, 10 and 12. And having put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. We're pulling the men's warehouse on this one. You're going to like the way you look. I guarantee it. You don't just have to be a man. It's for anybody. You're going to like the way you look because you'll be clothed in righteousness. Number four, let it go, bro. Colossians 3.13, bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive them as the Lord forgave you. Right? It's not worth it. I've heard this, that, you know, unforgiveness is like drinking poison and expecting it to hurt the other person. It only hurts you. And this is the old man. This is earthly thinking and it's temporal. It's sin and it's separating you from God and that person even more. So let it go. Number five, get rich. Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. You should be a student of the word. You should crave it. You should desire it. It should get on the inside of you. So what happens if my iPad dies or somebody starts burning Bibles again? It's so important that the, that the word of God gets transferred from tablets of stone to the tablet of your heart. It must be written on the tablet of your heart. Come on. We talked about this in Bible school. Logos, the written word of God, is in your heart so that the rhema, right, it's not just a school in Oklahoma, it means the spoken word of God can come forth. The spoken word always comes from the written word. What is the spoken word? That's the sword of the spirit. Think about it in armor, a sword. What is the sword attached to? The belt of truth. What is truth? The written word. Spoken word must come from written word. You must have it on the inside of you so you can speak it and declare it over your life, over any situation. Be a student of the word. 
Other words for rich are plentiful, abundant, lavish, and overflowing. Also, in culinary terms, the word rich means it's a certain flavor that's more dominant than other flavors. When I take a bite out of a good piece of chocolate cake, that chocolate cake better be rich. I shouldn't have to search long with my taste buds thinking like, what is that? What is that, vanilla? Like, I don't know. No, the flavor is present even to the aftertaste. The Bible says what? Taste and see that the Lord is good. How are people who don't know God gonna taste of God through your life, through your holiness? When someone encounters you, it's not like, oh, there's a taste of Christianity there, but it's watered down. A hint of vanilla? No, they should be able to taste of your life and go, wow, that's a Christian. That's somebody who lives their convictions out. That's somebody who's set apart. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And number six, and we'll be done with this one. Get yourself a tortilla. <laughs> Naked burritos are not on the menu. As much as you love them at Chipotle, it's not a thing, okay? We like getting those burrito bowls at Chipotle or Qdoba. But imagine having to eat that with your hands. It would be a mess. It would fall apart. You would use way too many napkins, Right? which is not good for the environment, but tortilla holds it all together. It's what makes a burrito a burrito. Without it, you just have ingredients in a mess, in a bowl. Come on. This is what love is to all the other virtues. To everything in your life that you do, you do for God. Love brings them together. It holds them. It binds them. It makes them secure. Colossians 3.14, but above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. New International Version says it this way, and over all these virtues put on love which binds them all together in perfect unity. Okay? Holiness is not not motivated by love is nothing more than a show. It's nothing more than stained glass. Why am I doing this? So I can look holy, so I can have perceived reputation of holiness? Or is it because I want to be close to my Father? And when I truly get a revelation of God's love for me, it causes me to see and love others like he does. And it turns all of Colossians 3 from a checklist of chores into a deep desire to be and experience his holiness. And it's lofty. I can't do it on my own. I need God's grace. And his grace only comes to me when I finally realize that I need him more than I ever have before. And we cry out, God, help me be holy. Father God, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that it's alive, that it's powerful. We thank you that it helps us live this life that you've called us to live through your word and the spirit of grace and the message of the gospel. We can truly rely and place our dependence on you and live a life of victory, live a life of holiness, which means set apart from the world and sanctified for you. I pray, Father God, that it's not something that people shy away from or think that it's too lofty, but we embrace it. We run towards it. We pursue holiness. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. All right, you guys can stand up. I'm sorry for going late. Thank you, Lord. All right, say this as we go. What God did in Christ Jesus far exceeds any damage done to me by Adam's fall. You may be dismissed. We'll see you tonight at 6 And Alan is going to be bringing the word tonight. You don't want to miss it.